The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. This, not so much through the lens of looking at mothers, but through the lens of looking at the Christian. If you're a Christian here today, this message is for you. This message is geared towards you. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, it doesn't mean that you should tune out and, and check out and leave because you will hear in the middle of this the gospel that you desperately need to hear as well. But I particularly want believers to pay attention today and be called to action today as we look at the Word of God together. Now, let me set this up before we read the text. Uh, if you've been here and following along as we've walked through 1 Corinthians, you know that Paul is in the middle of defending himself because there are some in Corinth that are questioning all sorts of things about Paul. They're questioning his, his status as an apostle. They don't like that he's making demands of them that are calling for life adjustment, that they don't really want to give. They want to be able to eat uh, wherever they want and whatever they want. And Paul's calling them to some different things. Paul has not taken a salary from them, and they've even used that against him. Most churches would be ecstatic if the pastor said, uh, I don't really want to take a salary from you. Most, most, that'd be like first unanimous amen, amen across the board, usually, in most churches. But they're using that against him, t- attempting to, saying that these other traveling speakers and orators are coming through, and they get paid. So, Paul, is it that you're not really worth your salt, and so we shouldn't pay you because what you're saying is not coming from a true apostle? They're calling into question these things, and Paul continues to defend himself and the choices that he has made for the sake of, this is key, for the sake of the advance of the gospel. Paul is willfully choosing to make some life changes so that the gospel will have a larger audience. Okay? Some in Corinth, they were questioning this. And Paul says, hey, um, I am an apostle. Let me tell you what's going on. Some of them were, uh, some of them in Corinth, being Gentiles themselves, had taken notice of how Paul seemed to be one way in front of them and sometimes seemed to make some other choices in front of Jewish people. He would eat certain things with them that he wouldn't necessarily eat with Jewish people. They thought this was wishy-washy and somewhat hypocritical. Um, In other words, what Paul was doing is when he was around Jewish people, Paul was being kosher. And when he was around Gentiles, he wasn't kosher. They wanted to use this against him. He was, in their eyes, a hypocrite. By observation, they were right. He was making some choices that were different depending on who he was around. He did change based on his company. But it wasn't rooted in the fact that Paul simply wanted to be able to do whatever he desired. Paul changed his behavior around certain people because he wanted the the gospel to be advanced. He was choosing to live a Christ-centered life in whatever social circumstances God placed him. And that's what I want us to see today, that Paul was choosing slavery for the advance of the gospel. He was choosing to live a Christ-centered life. And I want to show you today some things about that. The position, the motivation, um, and, and, and we'll go from there. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 
verses 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Now, there's your three points of this sermon. I'll finish reading in just a second, but the three points are summed up in that. He says, though I am free from all, that's his position. He says, I've made myself a servant to all. That's his decision that I might win more of them. That's his motivation or his ambition. Okay, so there's your three points of the sermon. Now you know where we're going. Let's finish out this text. Verse 20, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Let's take this and pick it apart. The first thing is the position of a Christ-centered life. Where are you coming from as a Christian if you're going to live a Christ-centered life? Paul says, for though I am free from all. What he's talking about here in the context is he's just argued for why he has not taken a salary from them. And because he's not taken a salary from them, he is free from them being able to manipulate him as to how he might do ministry. He does not need to answer to them. He's free of all. But Paul knows it's not only his freedom in having to answer to them, but he's also free in Christ. And what does that mean? What does he mean when he says, I am free from all, free in Christ? Well, first off, in verse 20, he says, I'm not under the law. And I would say to you today, believer, you are not under the law. He says in verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, meaning Jews again, those that are trying to live pleasing to God by following the law. He says, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. What this means is this, that in Christ, it's not up to you to make yourself acceptable to God. That you don't have to strive for that. It's not on you. You're not living day to day wondering, well, did I do enough today? Well, I blew it today. If Jesus comes back right now, I guess I'm doomed to hell because I just didn't live it today. This is not the life of a Christian. Paul says, I'm not under the law. He says, circumcision is not necessary. Certain food laws have been nullified by Christ when Christ comes and He fulfills the law and marks out a new people for Himself, the church. He's nullified those. This means that we can eat bacon and ham and catfish and all these other things, right? It's not dependent. The Jews lived in fear that if they did these things, then they were on the outs with God. The law was never meant to save us. The law was meant to show us our need of a Savior. Because it's not our individual acts that necessarily condemn us. It's the fact that we have a heart that's dead toward God. That we sin because we are sinners. It's 
like a dog that barks. He barks because he's a dog. We sin because there is fundamentally at our core something wrong, and it is called sin. Food laws have been nullified. Special observances of the Mosaic law. Do you realize what it must have been like to live as a Jew before Christ came? Do you realize this? Do you, have you ever started out at the first of the year or January? You say, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, and you do pretty well through Genesis, and then you start getting into Deuteronomy and Leviticus and these places, and you get bogged down because you're thinking, why do I need to know that? What is that all about? Well, for us in Christ, it doesn't mean that we ignore it, but Christ has fulfilled it. But it was a picture for them of what had to be done on a repeated basis because of the condition of their hearts. Listen, if you will, just to give you an example, Numbers chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. This is what was prescribed to them. And just think, you didn't have to do this this morning, okay? At the beginnings of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord. Two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, a year old without blemish. Also three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering. Mixed with oil for each bull and two-tenths of fine flour for a grain offering. Mixed with oil for, for the one ram. And a tenth of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for every lamb. For a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. Their drink offerings shall be half a hen of wine or for, for a bull, a third of a hen for a ram and a quarter of a hen for a lamb. This is the burnt offering of each month throughout the months of the year. Also one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offerings and its drink offering. Can you imagine living there under that? Would you have felt like you could come in today? I wouldn't have. I'd have just checked out as the pastor and said, I don't know, I, I, I can't do this. Fortunately, because of the cross, we don't have to. Paul says, I'm not under the law. When I'm around Jews, I I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. But it's not because I see myself as being under the law and having to do these things from the same position that they are doing these things. I am free in Christ, and therefore I can use my freedom to advance the gospel to these that desperately need to hear it. Amen. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Child of God, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian here today, you are not under the law. Stop living from that position to where you feel like, yes, you were saved by Jesus, but now if you're going to stay saved, you've got to perform. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's the finished work of Christ. He has not only brought us to justification, he will also sanctify us, and those whom he sanctified, he will also glorify. He will take us from beginning to end. It is the work of Christ by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Amen? We are free. We are not under the law. But, but, listen, Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't simply say, not under the law. So anything goes, right? No, but listen, he says in verse 21, I'm not without the law. I'm not under the law, having to make myself pleasing to God, but I'm not without the law. This is a phrase that means I'm not lawless. Verse 21, he says, 
to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. But then he feels the need in parentheses to say, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. What he's saying is, when I was around Gentiles, I I became like a Gentile. I went where they go. I ate with them. I ate their food because I'm free in Christ. It doesn't matter to Christ what, what I eat or what I don't eat. What he wants is my heart. But because I am free doesn't mean that I just throw everything out the window and become totally lawless, totally rebellious, totally godless or wicked. This is what he means when he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul says, there is such a thing as wrong. I'm not saying that I'm no longer under law. I don't have to perform to make myself pleasing to God. Therefore, I can just live however I want and do whatever I please. Because let's, let's don't ever forget, church. Hear me. Everybody look at me. Your heart, my heart, desperately wicked. There are ways that seem right to you and I in the moment, but their end is destruction. And Paul says, I'm not without the law. I'm not being lawless or wicked or godless. He says, no, I'm under the law of Christ in verse 21. And when you read that, you can't help but to think, what's what's he mean? under the law of Christ? Is he talking about a whole new set of rights, a whole new set of rules, a whole new set of do's and don'ts? Is this what Paul's talking about? Is there something that we need to be aware of? Is there a second ten commandments? No. No, because remember, it's not up to us to save ourselves or to keep ourselves saved. But there are certain things that are taught and commanded by Jesus. This is called sound doctrine. This is why we preach from the Word of God. This is why I repeatedly call you to repentance. This is, this is true that there are some things that we must, must strive for, and there are some things that we must say no to, not in order to make ourselves pleasing to God, but because we are His. This can be summed up... Um, Well, let me just read Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. He says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What this means for us is that if we really want to live and fight and, 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 and strive from a position of a Christ-centered life. It means that we are free. We are not under the law, but we are not lawless. We are under the law of Christ. And if you and I, I'll say this again at the end, but if you and I can live our lives however we want to live them, according to us, to follow our desires, and we still can say, oh, I love Jesus, but we just do whatever we want to do, we betray our love. 
and we reveal that we have no love for Him, that we are truly not under His law, that we have never been captured by His grace, we are still in our sin in need of being saved. But if you are a Christian here today, your position is, I am not under the law. I am free to serve and follow Christ. Secondly, I'll skip the second point in in verse 19, and I'll go go to the end. If that's the position of the Christ-centered life, what is the ambition of a Christ-centered life? Well, the ambition or the motive of a Christ-centered life, Paul says, that I might win more of them. What does he mean by win them? Win them to what? The same word is used in Matthew 18, verse verse 15, where he's entering into this, this section that talks about church discipline where a brother knows his brother is in, is in sin and goes and confronts his brother over that sin. And if his brother listens and repents, it says that he gains his brother, that he wins his brother back. Okay, so there's the same word. gives us a clue. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 addresses wives who are living in homes where there is an unbelieving, ungodly husband. And he says to them, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. They may be won. I think what's being talked about here, five times Paul says that I might win them. Well, obviously, it's to win them to Christ. It's to win them over to the faith, that they might follow Jesus, that they might enter into discipleship with Jesus as their master. But then he leaves the winning word, and in verse 22 he says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So he goes from winning them to now saving them. Well, what does he mean by this? Save them from what? I mean, isn't save a pretty dramatic term? I will never forget running around the pool when I was probably nine, ten years old with my best friend Willie Williamson. Next door, best friend Willie, we got all kinds of trouble. We were running around the pool, which is something you're never supposed to do. You're never supposed to run around a pool. Willie couldn't swim. Willie knew that he could, he could get in the shallow end of the pool and he'd be fine because he could still touch the bottom and he could bob along or whatever. But we were playing tag outside the pool and I was chasing him. And when he tried to get away from me, he jumped into the pool and didn't realize that his momentum would carry him beyond the shallow end. And before Willie knew it, he was in the deep end and could not touch the bottom. Well, he began to panic, and, and my momentum carried me right over in the pool with him. And, and I came up, and we were laughing, and I, I was laughing. And I looked over at Willie, and Willie's not laughing. Willie's drowning. Willie's in the process of dying. Well, I did what anybody would do in that, set, in that situation, unless you've been trained not to do this. I thought, Willie needs saved. I'm a pretty good swimmer. I'll save Willie. I swam over to Willie. I tried to grab Willie. And Willie grabbed me back around the head. And used me as a flotation device. <laughs> and he held me under the water. And, and I remember coming up, fighting to get up and gasping for air. And every time I would come up, I would see my dad on the side. And my dad was looking at us. Boys, you all right? Help, Dad. I need to be saved. I'm drowning. Gulping in water. Dad, I'll come up the next time. Dad's over there and he's taking his watch off. 
I go back down. I'm fighting for my life again. I come up and I see Dad. He's taking his shirt off. You know, I come up like a third time. See Dad pulling his socks off. And finally, Dad jumps in and saves us. Pulls both of us to dry land. Saving is a drastic term. I knew in that moment, if somebody didn't intervene, I was going to die right there. Willie would be shortly there after me. I would only hold him up a little longer. So what does Paul mean when he says, I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some? Well, the answer is found in Romans 5.9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, wait a minute. What this means is that those of us who are in Christ, we have been justified, meaning our sin has been wiped away. There is therefore now no condemnation against us. Yet, he says, how much more will we be saved from the wrath of God? What this points to, church, is that there is coming a day of wrath. There is coming a day of the wrath of God. And I would ask you today, church, do you believe in that day? Do you believe in the coming day of the wrath of God? If you do, should it not change the way you live? Should it not change the way I live? Not for my sake, because I have been justified. There is no condemnation for me. But there are those that are not under Christ. They're under the law. They're without the law. They're lawless. They're wicked. There's coming a day of wrath for them. Should it not change the way I live in my freedom toward them? Or should I simply be concerned with myself? The coming wrath of God is far worse than any bad day, any bouts with depression, any struggles with money, any assignments at the office, any rejection by people that you desperately want to accept you. The coming wrath of God is far worse than any of that. Revelation chapter 6 describes it. And in Revelation chapter 6, those that are facing this coming wrath of God are calling out to the mountains for the rocks to fall on them and crush them before they have to face this one. This is this day. Jesus described it as as fire that does not go out. Being cast into outer darkness. He described it as a place where the worm never stops eating. Does this sound like a day that will be fun with a group of friends? We'll all party together. At least I'll be there with them. We'll have a good time together. Shouldn't the reality of such a coming wrath lead us to live in such a way as to see as many possible saved from it? Which leads us to the final point of the text. Our position is we're free in Christ. Our ambition should be in our lives to live so that those that are in our lives don't have to go through this day of wrath. And the final point is this. The decision is ours. 
the decision of a Christ-centered life. Paul says it this way, I have made myself a servant to all. Now notice his language there. I have made myself. This, this points to the fact that there is a choice here for Paul. This didn't come naturally. He had to discipline himself for this, to lay down his freedom at time, to both suppress it and then also to go to use it so that others might know Christ. Think about who Paul is. I thought about this as I was writing this. Paul was, Paul was one who was thoroughly Jewish. He was born a Jew, circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Pharisee. He was, according to the law, he says, blameless. To the one who was thoroughly Jewish, but who had come to understand that the law was powerless to save, pointless to pursue, and incompatible with an, an, an antagonistic toward the gospel. When he went to be with Jews who were still living under that law and still pursuing this, this had to have been at the very, very least uncomfortable for him. Because he had come to see the error in it. And so he had to see this as, as, as uncomfortable. To the one who was under the law of Christ, he had come to know Christ as Savior. His, his sin had been forgiven, yet he was compelled, given a new heart to follow this God. He understood that God was holy and desired for him to be holy to this one when he was around Gentiles. Just being around those who were outside the law had to have at times been uncomfortable to one who was anything but weak, but who was strong in a religious pedigree. And if anybody had a pedigree, Paul had a pedigree. Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I mean, Paul was not weak. He was not some wishy-washy, just blown around by the wind and tossed by the current kind of guy. Paul was strong in his religious pedigree, but not only his religious pedigree, he was strong in his faith and his calling. Paul is the one who was on his way to persecute the church, to arrest Christians. He was standing by the stoning of Stephen and holding their, co their coats. He was on his way to persecute more when Jesus knocked him off of his horse, blinded him, and called him to himself called him to be an apostle, gave him a special calling to go and be an apostle as one who had seen the Lord Jesus. So when he was around those who struggled with these seemingly, sometimes even to us, weak issues, he had to have been uncomfortable at times. must have been very incredibly difficult to become weak that he might win the weak. But Paul understood that he was not called to what was comfortable. He was not called to himself. The gospel was not his own personal story of happiness and self-fulfillment. Paul knew this. That's why I, I'll read it again. 
Galatians 5, 13, he writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't let your freedom be used as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The reason Paul could get to that point is because Paul had, had seen this in, in Jesus himself. He had learned from the ultimate example, Mark 10, 45, Jesus himself told his disciples, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, maybe more vividly than not any other scripture, but a lot, paints the picture of the humility of Jesus, how Jesus is free. Being second member of the Trinity, God, didn't have to leave heaven, but did. Philippians 2, verse 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul had decided that even though, even though he was free and he was subject to no one, he would use his freedom to voluntarily choose slavery. He would become servant of all. To which I would say to you, church, hear me. What about you? The reality is if you are saved, if you're a Christian here today, your position is no different than Paul's. Sometimes we want to put these guys up on a pedestal and say, well, yeah, that was Paul. No, your position is no different than Paul's. You're free. You're not under the law. You're not having to earn favor with God. He is pleased with Christ. And if you are in Christ, he is pleased with you. The righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account. Your sin has been laid on Christ. And God is so pleased that he raised Jesus from the dead. So your position is no different than Paul's. What about you? It's the ambition of your life to look around at the people around you and say, there is coming a day of wrath for them. And somebody needs to do something. Somebody needs to say something. Somebody needs to live in such a way that they point to the gospel. Are you looking around at coworkers who are Christians or at the pastor who's on the platform and saying, would you do something? Or will you, in your position of freedom in Christ, say, I will use my freedom to become servant to all. Are you willing to choose to enslave yourself for the sake of the lost in your world? John Piper says it this way, for love's sake, in freedom, you try to overcome every unnecessary alienating difference between you and those you're trying to reach. Now what does that look like? Let me just give you a couple of little scenarios. Are you sharing a meal with those neighbors who are of another faith? Do you know what faith they have? Have you reached out to them at all? Or maybe you do know that they are of another faith. Maybe they're Jehovah's Witness or maybe they're Muslim or maybe, maybe something else. And you say, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to do. Therefore, you just shrink back. And you hide yourself in your Christian bubble. And you don't use your freedom for the glory of God among that family. But instead, you serve yourself so that you might be comfortable and happy 
Another scenario, do you continue at work to befriend that coworker who has a foul mouth, who tells inappropriate stories for the sake of him coming to know the same Lord that you know? Or do you shrink back from him and say, I can't subject myself to that. That's, that's filthy. I will not be around that. And the reality is, it is filthy. When they cuss like a sailor, and they use the Lord's name in vain, and they talk about all sorts of things that, that happened over the weekend, or, or they talk about uh, women or somebody else in a certain way, and it's just degrading as all get out. Yes, you're right, it is wicked and it is filthy and it is disgusting. But think of what Jesus willingly subjected himself to, the one who was perfect and is perfect in holiness, came to earth. If he used our same logic, he would not come. Because our sin is no different from their sin if you are perfect in holiness. Have you distanced yourself from this coworker because you just can't be around that kind of filth? We push back from this because we say, well, you know, aren't I supposed to be holy, Pastor? Are you telling me that I should, I should be around this? What if, what if he rubs off on me? Well, you're going to have to take stock of that. You're going to have to put some people in your life to hold you accountable. You're going to have to stay in the Word of God. You're going to have to pray. But it does not mean that you should pull away from the world. Remember what Jesus prayed. He didn't want God to take us out of the world. We were to be left here, but that He would keep us as we're in the world. Aren't I supposed to be holy? Yes, I would say but we should also be fighting for their holiness as well. Romans 10 says, how will they hear without a preacher? And the only way that will happen is if a Christian engages them and tells them the gospel, which, by the way, I'm assuming is probably what happened in your life. Somebody engaged you and told you the gospel. We do need to be careful. We, we can go too far. I would say this. Let me give you just a couple of questions to test this. If you're laying down your freedom for the sake of someone else, maybe possibly coming to know Christ, you're involving yourself in that world. You don't want to get so overcome by that world that you no longer are godly, but you're becoming more worldly. Here's a couple of questions to guard you from that. Are you becoming more worldly-minded as you're doing this, as you're laying down your freedom for their sake? Are you becoming more worldly-minded than those you, you love are becoming more spiritually-minded? As you lay down your freedoms to serve them, are you, in the process, becoming more worldly-minded than they are becoming more spiritually-minded? If you begin to look around and see that happening, then maybe you need to pull back. Maybe you need to go to a brother or sister Maybe you need to get some help. There's repentance in your future. So we can become, we can go too far in this contextualization. 
It's real easy to go from contextualization for the sake of the gospel to liking that new context, isn't it? Another question to test this on ourselves is this. And I would ask this of you. How many people in your life, how many people in your life are lost? Do you know? See, if if you can't say or you struggle to think of any lost people in your life, then the reality is you're not laying down your freedom for the sake of the lost. Instead, you, you have you've shrink-wrapped yourself in this cocoon of Christianity, and you've refused to get dirty for the sake of the gospel. And I would challenge you to, to look for some lost people to, to be a witness to. We did recently, not too long back, I'll finish with this, we did by name, where we asked you for the month, to pray for someone by name, leading up to Easter, praying for them by name, looking for some way to engage them outside of normal, normal circumstances and then to articulate, share the gospel with them. And for many of you, for the first time, it clicked. Somebody came to your mind. And that's not everybody. Some of you are very engaged with, with some people out there. But didn't it help you to begin to look around to look around and see people in your life that maybe you had looked right past before. Maybe it's the person behind the counter at the gas station or the person who serves you coffee. Or you could go on and on and on, but somebody in your life needs to know the gospel. It's really easy to become isolated within this Christian bubble. Paul says, verse 22, you're complaining about me. You're criticizing me because you say that I'm being wishy-washy and hypocritical. But I say to you, verse 22, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And then look at how he finishes that in 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. I told you I would say this again at the end. This is what I would say to you. Paul says that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul is here not advocating for a works-based gospel. He is not saying, the reason I preach the gospel, the reason I, and the way I am with Jews and the way I am with Gentiles is so that they can hear me preach the gospel, and if I do enough of this, then I'll share with them in this blessing. This is not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, I'm not advocating a works-based gospel. I'm advocating a gospel that so captures you that you work from that gospel. You see it? And he says there that the reason I do this is because I'm under the law of Christ, and I can't help it. I'm compelled to. God has changed my very heart to where I see people differently, not because I am perfect, but because he has changed me. And because he's captured me, I love people. Church, what about you? Will you, in your freedom, become all things to all people, that by all means you might save some. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't deserve to call you Father. We don't deserve to call you our God. We don't deserve to have you in our lives. We don't deserve the fact that 
You came to take our place. In fact, what we deserve, God, is wrath. But God, we thank you. You are faithful. That you are just, and we see that justice when you put Jesus on the cross. But you are also loving and merciful. And we see that when you put Jesus on the cross. God, thank you for extending this offer of salvation to us. God, I pray for the believers, the Christians in the room. God, that we would indeed operate from our freedom for the sake of those who do not yet know you. And God, I pray that we would choose slavery for your glory. God, for those in the room who don't know you yet, who are not believers, God, today I pray, would you open their ears, their eyes, their minds, their hearts, and God, that the gospel would echo within the hollow spaces of themselves as the one defining truth that they have longed for. God, make it real to them, and God, call them to repent and believe. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to reflect on what's been said here today and respond accordingly. As God has called you to certain things, we ask you to be obedient in that. Maybe you're here today and you knew as you came in that you were ready to join this church. Well, I'll be seated right down there, and I'd love to receive you. Maybe you're here today and, and uh, there's just some things in your life that you've been, you've been holding on to, and you've not, you've not followed the example of Christ Instead, you've hoarded your rights for your own personal gain. And today, maybe you just need to come and kneel across this front and just ask God to forgive you. To begin to operate from a position of freedom, not for freedom. Maybe today you're here and you don't know Christ. You don't know this hope. I'm going to be seated right down there and I would love for you to come talk to me. There's nothing magical or significant about coming to the preacher. But if I can help you, I would love to help you. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to help you articulate what God is doing in you. We ask that God's calling you to turn from yourself, that you would turn, that you would forsake yourself, that you would trust Christ alone as your only hope of being made right. Because in the end... If you don't, it's useless. It's pointless to try to get there on your own. If you're under law today, you've got to be frustrated. You've got to have feelings of hopelessness and despair because every single day you say, I'm going to do better. And the reality is at the end of every day, you realize that you didn't do what you promised you would. But there is one, and his name is Jesus, who did it all. And he took the wrath of God for you if you would only repent and believe. So whatever God calls you to today, be obedient to him. Say yes as we respond to him. Let's worship our God.
This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.